Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichua Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta. And joining us today is Professor Norma Dunning. Norma is an Enoch writer, professor and researcher, and her book, Eskimo Pie, A Poetics of Inuit Identity, was released in June of this year. She's also working on a collection of short stories, which will come out next year, as well as other books, her fourth book, in fact, on the Eskimo identification tags. Uh, we also worked together with Norma on a campaign to put pressure on the sponsors of the Edmonton CFL team to change the name, a campaign that was you know, ultimately successful. And Norma also recently wrote a very powerful story for us on Edmonton's actual historical relationship to the Inuit. Norma, welcome to the Progress Report. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me, Duncan. I really appreciate it. And it's been a, a real pleasure to work with you on this issue for, I mean, really, uh, it's been kind of the past six weeks. We've been working very hard on it, but we connected back in 2017, I think it was, right? That's right. Um, at that time, I don't know how much even got really to, you know, to be able to go forward with anything, you know, in that time. And then I moved away for a year and uh, came back about a year ago, so... Yeah, and there was a bit of pressure back in 2017 to change the name. I think Don Iveson mentioned it in passing, and I think uh, Avnish Nanda put out a petition and stuff, and there was a, a little bit of a push towards it. But the Edmonton CFL team definitely very, worked very hard to kind of snuff that out in advance of the, the 2018 Grey Cup. <laughs> well, you know, like I did appreciate having Mayor Don at least say something, you know, and um, to like to trigger that thought you know into everybody's head and and i was expecting perhaps an explosion in 2018 and nothing occurred so so i yeah, don't the gray cup kind of went off without a hitch and no one really kind of raised a fuss about the name and yeah. it's a it was a it's funny how things happen but i mean i don't think we would have been nearly as effective working together and this is kind of how organizing works right is that like you you kind of make build relationships and meet people and learn about them. And then, you know, maybe your first kick at the can is, is unsuccessful, but those relationships that you build actually help you be more successful down the road, right? Yeah, that's true. And, um, you know, there were many people who came back repeatedly, uh, not only Progress Alberta, CBC um, Morning Radio, CBC Afternoon Radio, uh, different people through Global News, so, you know, there were people who are networks that stayed with the story and, you know, gave it a bit of airtime. And I appreciated it, you know, every little bit that they gave me, even though they would interview for about 30 minutes and then play 30 seconds. <laughs> so, but I would tell myself, you know, it's worth it. It's always worth it if you're, you know, if you're fighting for something that you believe in. And mm -hmm. you just stay the course with it. And it's not fun and it's not easy. And people called me every name I could think of uh, up to and including last Sunday uh, publication with Calgary Sun, where um, a letter to the editor, I was, uh, I was called a zealot. <laughs> and so, I mean, that was better than the usual names, but um but it's funny that, you know, now we've had a bit of time since the team announced that they will make a change, but it's funny how it resonates with people, people and it stays in media. I just always expect that everything will drop the next day, you know, that everything will just uh, disappear. But I was quite amazed that there was still a letter to the editor in the Calgary Sun last weekend. I mean, I think it, 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 you know, when you talk about this and you talk about the broader issue of kind of like racist uh, sports team names, uh, not only the Edmonton CFL team, but, uh, you know, you can think of a half dozen others, uh, the Washington NFL team, the Cleveland baseball team, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a, a lot of uh, criticism you hear around this is that it's, um, oh, it's, it's minor, you know, it's, it's the people, you know, indigenous folks, Inuit folks, they face such much bigger problems. But I think that really underscores and undersells how effective sports are and how powerful sports are at kind of creating a, a, like a narrative that millions of people can kind of tap into, right? And 
And I, I mean, a, a not a, an imperfect example, but an example that I think is useful is like, you know, the NBA, uh, I'm a big NBA fan, right? And, and the, the NBA has kind of started back up in the middle of this pandemic. And they've really kind of leaned into, you know, Black Lives Matter and, uh, and then kind of messages, various messages around that. And, uh, and they even debated whether they would even kind of hold a season again because of all of the unrest around police brutality down in the United States. Players actually were contemplating not going back to work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think we shouldn't undersell what sports can do when it comes to kind of just like creating popular and common narratives that so many that a wide variety of people can tap into and that's why ultimately i think a story like changing the the racist name of the edmonton cfl team is ultimately important well i think you know where people get uncomfortable is uh they don't want to examine their own racism and 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 so it, it brings discomfort to them and i you know i heard it over and over again eskimo is only a word and what happened uh, within this past year, this past bit of time, is so many people were uh, sending me these horrific messages on Facebook. But one commonality was, um, well, you have a book of poetry called Eskimo Pie. Are you going to be changing that title? And of course, they don't have, they're not saying the full title. But at the same time, people have this huge loyalty towards sports teams. And, uh, you know, things like, well, my grandfather collected all the memorabilia from the Eskimos. And, you know, what happens to that? And, you know, it's funny because they're totally usually missing out on the entire point of making that change. And it's easier to what I found most amazing it's easier to come after Norma Dunning than apparently it is to go after um, uh, Bel Air Direct or any of the other sponsors so it's um, like it's kind of funny you become this target and a scapegoat in a sense because you know, and and I don't know if it's just uh, how people choose to direct their anger, and really they don't want to talk about racism. They don't want to um, think about why that word is offensive. Instead, I heard a lot of rhetoric about, you know, I'm just sick of all this change. You know, like poor me, poor non-indigenous me. I have to think about, a, you know making a change well it's just tiring am i yeah that's right you are so so inconvenienced well in the meantime Inuit people in our country are starving and nobody is doing anything about that Inuit people are not graduating from high school and nobody does anything about that but but say oh we're going to make a name change and everybody has a fit so it's um to me it's really amazing and the way uh it's almost like a mob mentality you know how it gathers steam and you know everybody's out against norma dunning and and for me i think it's fine fine because this is, uh, you know, it's a brief amount of time in every year for the last seven and a half years. And, but it brings it back. And I was very pleased this year, you know, that they, they actually followed through. I mean, you were, you were the very public face of, uh, you know, the, the campaign to have the, the name change, right? Like as an Enoch woman who lives in Edmonton, you know, you did a lot of media on this subject. You, you had been working on this for several years. Yeah. And, um, and I think, I mean, one, I mean, when you put yourself out there as the public face of something like this, you're definitely going to run into racists who are going to make your life difficult. But I'm also curious about like, like your story, like how did you end up in Edmonton, you know, fighting to change the, the racist name of the local foot- football team? When this all initiated, I had been invited to speak on CBC Afternoon Radio downtown 
And when I got there, that's when, you know, rumblings of, the, of a change of name had occurred. And I was there to speak about the Inuit Edmonton mute group that had resurrected itself for the third time. And I was volunteering as vice president. So when I got there, uh, the very first question I was asked is, well, what do you think about the football team making a name change? And I, it was an unexpected question. Um, I had spent the day at the university. I hadn't checked in with any media. So I was unaware of the story. And at that time, I said, you know, uh, Inuit have bigger issues. But nobody took that story further. And, um, and so initially, that's what comes out into media. Well, you know, Inuit have bigger problems, biggest, bigger disparities. But then, you know, when I was given time to reflect on it and to, and to be able to um, move an Inuit agenda into the public's imagination, and if that agenda only, you know, lasts five seconds every year for the next seven years, then it's worth it. For me, it is worth it. And because Inuit people are often silenced, they're not uh, given a great deal of media. We don't speak about the disparities that Inuit Canadians continue to live under. And we also do not speak enough about Inuit success. So if for a brief amount of time, in every year, I could say something to draw the public's attention to Inuit Canadians. I did it, and that, and to me, that was um, a real motivator. And you know, we have to really think about what that word Eskimo represents. So it's um, so that's how it all began, Duncan. But then you know, it, and when do you remember? Do you remember when when that was? Uh, that had to have been in around 2013, 2014. Oh, wow. Okay. So even before Natan Obed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before Natan Obed and before Prime Minister Trudeau, before, you know, any of them. And, you know, there's, as time went along, um, you know, I would receive more and more calls through, through fall. And that's how I knew that the uh, Grey Cup was coming up. Otherwise, because I don't follow football, I do follow baseball. But, um, you know, that's and there were weird kind of media things that happened where I would be asked to speak on a live noon hour sports show with uh, an announcer who was anti-change for the football team name. And instead, what would happen is, oh, you know, Norma, we're going to record you and then we'll keep this guy live on the show with us. So often I wasn't given that opportunity, like a live opportunity to speak directly to somebody who was in opposition. So you can begin to see how media carves the information and how it's shaped and how it's um, presented. And I think this year they did better overall. Like, I, But I will always give kudos to CBC um, Morning. I will always give them kudos for, you know, they did, they would send their questions in advance and they stuck to script and, you know, they were really respectful. But um, there were other media who, you know, they just wait for you to say something that can be pitched as um, crazy. Here she goes. And no wonder there are people in Calgary writing in and saying, you know, she's a zealot. <laughs> so you start, uh, you know, thinking about the name back in 2013, 2014. Um, you know, you were a part of local Inuit organizations here in Edmonton. Um, and then I think there's there's another uh, kind of media event that happens um, that kind of also throws this issue back into the public eye, and that is Natan Obed, the leader of Inuit Taparit Kanatami, 
writing in the Globe and Mail that, you know, Inuit are not mascots and that they should change the name. Do you think that had a, a big effect on the the kind of discourse around the name change as well? Well, I think, you know, what foreshadowed and what really opened the door for Natan Obed and what we have to remember about him is that he only represents Inuit who live in the north. And there's about 40% of our population or 18,000 Inuit who live outside of their land claims areas. And... Um, so when he speaks, he's speaking for Northern Inuit. He, to say that he speaks for all Inuit to me is inaccurate because I've studied how the land claims work and I am a beneficiary of Nunavut, as are my sons. And um, anyhow, I think though with him coming forward and putting something out there, what foreshadowed him were, were the 94 calls to action through the TRC and the incredible work that that group did in, in putting that, that entire process together and then being able to release the 94 calls to action, which included the removal of the indigenous names towards any sports team and as mascots. So, um, you know, that, that I think uh, foreshadowed, followed by Natan Obed, followed by Justin Trudeau, followed by Mayor Don Iveson. And then along the way, there were other Inuit who spoke out against the name. And so to me that, you know, it was something that occurred in media and it, it took a while to pick up steam, but I, it was something that I was always invited to speak on. And for me, um, if I can bring Inuit into the public imagination for a few seconds every year, that's great. Yeah, I think ultimately when we look at back on this issue and, and how the Edmonton CFL team was ultimately forced to change their names, I think there are a couple of big inflection points, right? Like I think, you know, what happened in the United States, you know, the protests around Black Lives Matter and uh, George Floyd's death and, you know, the effect that that had on monuments and sports team names down in the United States uh, really kind of pushed the issue into the forefront up here in Canada. But uh, it really is you know, a death by a thousand cuts, right? You've got, you know, starting back in 2013, 2014, you've got, you know, you starting the process of, of being like, Hey, like we should change the name. We've got Natan Obed, we've got, you know, prominent Inuit folks, um, you know, like Tanya Tagak and others, you know, agitating to change the name. We've got Don Iveson mentioning it in 2017. Um, you know, it really is. And then you've got kind of spot and really, uh, you know, one of the big things I think is sponsors this mm. summer, you know, as this kind of, as this issue boils up, you've got, you know, Bel Air Direct, a company which I had never heard of, uh, some big insurance company that apparently throws hundreds of thousands of dollars at the Eskimos every year is like, uh, you have to change the name. And uh, and they had previously been pretty uh, pretty reluctant to to change the name. And this this sponsor thing really got their attention. Eh? I don't mind that. You know, if that's what it took, like, the, and literally it having Bel Air and other sponsors come forward and say, we don't like this. We're tired of this. If you don't make a change, we're out. And I really, I thought it was great. I thought, thank goodness. You know, money talks. It's unfortunate. Money talks. But when it comes to who receives the um, blowback from the general public, I don't know if Bel Air Direct ever had anybody send them a million rotten emails <laughs> or if any of the sponsors did, you know, like it's, um, it's funny how people direct their anger and how they, you know, what they choose to do and, and who's an easy target, you know, so, so I mean, it, I, for me, it made people think about Inuit. It made people think about that and examine their own racism. And, um, and it made people uncomfortable. So to me, that it was worth it every year to talk about it. 
Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we had the team as early as uh, February of this year, I think even June of this year, saying they had no plans to change the name. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, life comes at you fast. And these uh, these movements, you know, peoples can change their minds, you know, as we have seen with this like Black Lives Matter and, you know, defunding the police, you know, issues around, uh, you know, racial justice and, you know, fighting white supremacy. I think, you know, we have seen, you know, broad amounts of people change their mind on things. And that's ultimately, you know, very positive. And one of the reasons why I think the Edmonton CFL team could not continue to have their name be, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Inuit, the folks who live, you know, up North. Well, I know Canada. like this year, I mean, aside from all the usual negativity, but I mean, that's part of talking about this every year. This year there were, I felt I felt there was much more support towards having that name change and um, and, you know, came from non Inuit people. And it was good to see people step up and not be, you know, not be afraid to weigh in on that issue. So um, I think this year, you know, there was a, and that I believe is all part of the Black Lives Matter and what happened in the U.S. And then, you know, it, it just was like wildfire across the globe. And, and so here, you know, people, there was much more support. So I was very happy with that. And, um, and like you're saying, people, like the ordinary person can, has a voice and that voice can promote very good change. And uh, it was good. You know, it was good to see how things turned out this year in terms of the amount of support the name change received and the number of people who, you know, who spoke and were not afraid. And I think, you know, we can thank Black Lives Matter for, you know, just the momentum that they managed to pick up and to um, put out there. I think it's worth also worth pointing out that the Edmonton CFL team did not do this willingly. They did. Uh, yeah. They were forced, dragged, kicking and screaming into doing this. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that they did um, uh, that actually um, was was ridiculous in the course of this, of trying to protect it, trying to not have to change their name, was they put out a survey. And this is part of a, a longer term public relations project that they had been engaging in, right, where they would go to uh, Northwest Territories, I think was the only place they ever went to, was where team executives ever went to. And... Uh, and, you know, they did some surveys, but they did this survey in July, right, where they mm -hmm. talked explicitly about uh, the, the, the name uh, of the team was originally chosen more than 100 years ago out of acknowledgement, perseverance and hardiness of Inuit culture. Right. And that's just straight up a lie. Right. That's just not true. Well, it isn't. And, um, you know, all the media where they were saying, oh, we did this to honor Inuit. What it showed me is that they really had no understanding of the Inuit population in modern day or in history. So it, um, so when they're putting that kind of rhetoric out there and making it sound like they were doing something honorable, and if you ask them, you know, what do you do on behalf of Inuit? And I believe it was just last year they had a, like a mini football camp in one of the northern communities and I when I was a, a part of the Inuit group when I was volunteering with them I emailed them more than once asking if uh, we could get like six free tickets for the Inuit children who live here in Edmonton if we could have like six tickets and I mean, it's a big deal for a kid to go to live sport. It's a big deal for an adult to go to live sport and, you know, never hear back, never hear back. And there were times when I emailed them about the name change and never a response. So when they're putting it out there, you know, that we're, we're doing this wonderful survey and I think their research was pretty shoddy. <laughs> but uh, they're putting it out there that we're we're doing something honorable, but 
are they? Do they even understand the population? Do they have any idea of what happens to Inuit Canadians historically and into present day? I don't think they do. I don't think they had, I don't think they ever had a clue. And what Well, was, there was a remarkable um, bit of spin, right, where it was like 78% of Western Inuit support the Edmonton CFL team's name, right, or don't want the name to change. And where and do that, they arrive at that? You know, the beautiful <laughs> thing about statistics is we can make them do whatever we want. And that's where people yeah. can't, you know, when somebody says to you, two out of three dentists say you should use Crest. <laughs> well, are we only Which talking dentists? to three dentists? <laughs> yeah, so if, if, if you have a group saying 78% of all Western Inuit, well, what they aren't giving you is what the actual population is, how many people they did speak with, and um, they're not sharing their data publicly. And, and they were hiding behind FOIP. And that is ridiculous. Because yeah, like I've, I've commissioned polls. Oh, I sorry, read polls, um, you know, kind of regularly. And like, yeah, they didn't release the total the total number of people surveyed. They kind of yeah. came out in dribs and drabs through conversations with media. They didn't release the methodology. And, and Western Inuit uh, make up around 7% of the population of Inuit who live mm-hmm. in the North, who live in the traditional territory of the Inuit. Yeah. And the vast majority of Inuit live in none of it, right? <laughs> That's right. The yeah, the bulk are in Nunavut. So um, <clears throat> when we when they're saying Western, I really don't know who they mean. <laughs> yeah, there's actually specific names for the territories that they live on too, like mm-hmm. which wasn't necessarily made clear and when they were right. talking about this. Right. Well, and how many people did they really talk to? But they can put out this kind of information and, oh, you know, I heard it repeated over and over again on the radio and i would think you know is the, does does this team think that the general public is that stupid that the general public is just going to believe that they had put together research and that it was uh, viable research and now they're putting these statistics out there in front of us and nobody's questioning it. So I, you know, I kept thinking, why isn't somebody within media really asking them, what exactly did you do? And they were very reluctant, you know, when they were questioned, they were reluctant to, like you have just said previously, they were reluctant to discuss methodology, the number of people they actually interviewed, how they arrived at their data. You know, they, they, they were very, um, and it's too bad. And what I can hope is that they've really learned a good lesson from that and that they won't put that kind of information into the public again. I mean, yeah, the other thing about this, the polling on this issue is I think Natan Obed said it very well. It's like, you, you, what are you, you going to do a straw poll on racism? Like, like what percentage would of, of, of people saying either either like the members of the public here in Edmonton for the survey that we're talking about with the stupid question or the survey of the Inuit that said like, oh, if, if only 20% of Inuit say it's racist, like, is that an acceptable amount? Like, like, like the, what the terms of success for that are is like pretty incredible when you actually kind of think, think about it for a second, right? Well, and yeah, and you have to really think about who, you know, who are they talking to? And, um, you know, what age group is it? Because, um, you know, I had, uh, I had heard, you know, information of older Inuit people saying, oh, we don't mind it. But they would have come through that time where the word Eskimo was commonplace. And they would have been raised, you know, through that time. And, um, you, you know, I mean, it's, it's since the 70s. You know, maybe their parents or grandparents had an Eskimo identification tag, right? Yeah, that's right. So the Eskimo identification tag system ran from 1941, officially 1941 to 71 in Canada. and But it's in the mid-70s where um, Inuit 
from Greenland, from uh, Siberia, Canada, all of the, all come together in a circumpolar conference and say, no, we don't, we're not called Eskimos anymore. We're called Inuit. And I mean, I thought Canada, you know, Canada dropped that right away and used Inuit. And then we have the formations of ITK, the Inuit Taparit Kanatami, and, and people who you know, really push it that we are Inuit and not Eskimo. But that is happening in the 70s. And here we are 50 years later and people are having a fit. <laughs> so then you think, well, what, what like what? You know, it's um, it's like a the gap in their information. Like, where where is their gap? And these Eskimo identification identification tags were, you know, an explicitly you know colonial anti Inuit project, right? Like, they wanted to keep track of where you were. It was how you kind of access government, and it was also instituted because they just, you know, the government didn't want to learn how to say Inuit names, right? No, well, it goes further than that, though, Duncan. Like, you have to remember that um, Inuit only ever carried one name, and that name was not a gendered name. So there weren't names for girls and names for boys. And you did not have a surname or a middle name. And so when we have, uh, you know, the missionaries followed by followed by the, well, what became the RCMP and other government employees going into the North, they're, they're getting confused. They're not understanding the naming system. And, you know, they just say, okay, everyone's going to get a number. But in doing that, what you are removing is the, a, a traditional naming system and a traditional system of death and how, how those two events are ceremonial. And what they're bringing in are biblical Christian names and Inuit are being told that these are the names you, you have to use. And this is a list, like, these are girl names and these are boy names. And so in doing that, I mean, all commerce, all education, all access to health care was through that number that was issued out by the government. And if you did not present that number, you weren't buying anything from the store. You were not uh, going to school and your doctor, when when they did come in, when they flew in, uh, was not going to treat you. So Inuit, it becomes a very, very heavy, heavy system of surveillance because when we think of somebody having to purchase something at the store, well, now they know that this number comes in and spends X amount of dollars per week on these items. So it was to me the, uh, the first really heavy system of surveillance. And um, what people will often come back with is, well, I have a social insurance number, but the social insurance number didn't come into use in Canada until 1965. And it was put forward for tax initially for the unemployment insurance system and later for tax. So um, to me, the comparison can't be made. If you did not have that number, if you didn't memorize it, if you didn't have that necklace around your neck, you were, uh, you were receiving zero benefits yeah they were, they were dog the tags right like Canada, they, they weren't it wasn't a piece of paper like a you know it wasn't no a it was a necklace yeah so it's a string and um it's not plastic it's a fabricated disc so i generally you know generally the mothers took care of that and inuit were told early on you know, you will fall in line. You are going to know your number. And the quote that I use is, um, 
Once the Eskimo realizes that the white man expects him to memorize his number, he will fall in line. But I mean, this number is how you accessed all the other, all the social benefits, all the social benefits that every Canadian had access to without a number. So that becomes the very, very um, important part is that the rest of Canada did not have to have their children scream out a number in school to mark their attendance. They, the rest of Canada wasn't having a number that gave them access to food or education or health care. And so like the, the Eskimo Identification Canada system is the only system that Indigenous people globally experienced in the way that it was managed. And it had, had such incredible longevity. So my book on that one is uh, releasing in 2022. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's incredibly interesting and, and structurally quite similar to the, like, the reservation pass system, right? These systems of colonial no, control. No, I won't, I won't take it to, to that, Duncan, because, um, you know, the pass system is what got you on and off reserve. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a really heavy system. I, but... Um, Nobody was having to use their number to access health care. And the, the expectation that when you were a kid and you're about six years old, you better have that number memorized. And so to me, um, the comparison is not correct. And we have to really think about how that number uh, stayed in into play long after the past system had been disbanded. Mm-hmm. So what happens to Inuit happens later, faster in terms of in terms of how colonization worked in the north, and you know then filters its way as Inuit are moving south. You know, so it's um. To me, it's not a good comparison to say it's like the past system, not at all. Well, at the same time as this Eskimo identification uh, Canada system is in place is simultaneously, like at the same time, we have, you know, the tuberculosis outbreak amongst Inuit people, right? Yeah. And and this is, you know, we commissioned you to write a story about Edmonton's, you know, re- real and actual historical relationship to the Inuit. And these tuberculosis outbreaks... Um, that happened and the, the kind of mismanagement of them by the Canadian government is really this, the connection, like the source of the connection between Edmonton and the Inuit, right? Can you, uh, can you explain that a bit? Well, you know, it's a huge in terms of population and how Inuit were just literally placed onto ships and brought into the council. At that time, it was the Charles Campbell Indian Hospital and often not tested for TB, but just the assumption that, you know, that they were ill and brought in. And generally their stays were one to two years. But, and I've, um, you know, I've heard the stories of people who you're bedridden, even though you may not be ill, you're bedridden. And how some people, you know, their muscles atrophy to the point where they have to relearn how to walk. And so it was just this mass influx of Inuit people who came into a hospital where nobody spoke their language, where uh, they would have really no understanding of why they were there, but you're enclosed. So to me, it's similar to being placed into a jail and left there. Um, your number uh, had to be used, of course, for your, your health care, having access to health care. And I've heard the, you know, and I believe it's Kevin Annett who has pictures of the Inuit children who are placed in front of the x-ray machines 
and they um, they're experimented upon. And what they're what the experiment is striving at is wanting to know how long it takes for a child to die from exposure of an X-ray of radiation. And that is in his book that is called Hidden from History. And so we have, you know, these little bits and pieces and snippets of information, but I don't think, I know that there is a, a researcher here, well, she isn't here, she's living in the U.S. right now, who has devoted a great deal of time into trying to pull together the, the history of the hospital and, um, you know, the brutality of it all, because often Inuit were discharged, but you're discharged with only the clothes on your back. And we have to remember that we're talking about a group of people who are not familiar with the language here in Edmonton at that time. They're not, um, they, are, they, aren't, they aren't working, who's going to hire them? And uh, you end up on the streets more than anything else. And often, well, and there's still continued stories about families that are still looking for their family members, sisters and brothers who still think that there's a possibility that their family member is going to come home and they have no idea of what happened to them. So, you know, there's many injustices and, and many um, still open kind of cases. I don't know if we can go as far as to call them a cold case. But we have to see how, you know, it's how colonization managed Inuit people. And there were, uh, there were, I'm thinking of it, uh, he was an Anglican uh, priest who, you know, he rallied and tried to, he wrote to government over and over again. His last name was Marsh. And he kept asking the government to please put, create a build a sanitarium in the north instead of removing people and i mean they come here they have nothing and they leave they have nothing and there's still so many and it's sad you know that all these years later that there are still people in the north of canada who have this tiny little bit of hope that maybe their brother or sister will come home because they've never been given any official information. Yeah, I mean, incredibly sad and tragic to even contemplate that. And uh, and that is kind of part of, you know, the federal government's, the Canadian government's mishandling of this tuberculosis uh, epidemic, right? Which is that people were shipped all over so, and a bunch never came back and they were functional. It was a dehumanizing process and a racist process that, you know, was put in place by the federal government. And this wasn't that long ago. These people are still alive, the ones who survived and their children are still alive and their grandchildren are still alive. And, um, you know, this is something that Canadians, you know, have to understand and contemplate. And it really is incredible to me that the Charles Campbell Hospital is being redeveloped into condos. <laughs> you know, I, that... I can't imagine anybody wanting to live there. I just, I cannot even fathom it. But um, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a part of Edmonton history that is just, it, you know, it's silenced and it's, uh, it's very much kind of left off. And my understanding is that, uh, because I did do some research when I was working on the Eskimo Identification Canada system research. I did go over to at the, you know, the Royal Alberta Museum and they had some papers, archival papers. And what I was hoping to see were the usage of the, the e-numbers, the usage of that system on hospital records. But my understanding is the bulk of the hospital records 
miraculously caught fire. And so there isn't um, any real accurate records. And the, the paperwork that I was shown were, were mainly monthly newsletters where, you know, Inuit people are photographed as making soapstone art or reading in their bed. And, you know, these, these very much posed for photographs that demonstrated the hospital as a, as a very good care center. But what people don't talk about are the number of deaths and um, Inuit being rounded up in the north without ever being tested. And now we're here in COVID and let's say we set up a COVID sanatorium and we just started throwing everybody in off the street. You know, that's how much sense it makes. And and I don't know if um, I don't know if people even want to hear it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't. But when I have that information and I start to speak out against the word Eskimo, that, you know, that's a gap that the rest of the general public they're uninformed. They don't understand the history of, of what happened to Inuit people here in Edmonton. And it's not to say that all history is bad or that it is all wrong, because we do have groups like um, Larga House here who take care of people who are coming in for medical treatment. And still to this day, Inuit patients need an Inuit translator. And so you can see where uh, Inuktitut remains strong in the north at about in 83 to 85%. And coming into Edmonton, they, you know, they are always are looking for a translator. And we do have a, a group out in uh, Stony Plain and it is called I Have a Chance. And it is a group that has supported Inuit, mainly from Nunavut, but also from all over Canada, who arrive with uh, physical or mental disabilities. And we have to remember in the North there, there isn't any infrastructure to take care of Inuit that need that type of care. And um, IHAC has been out in Stony Plain for about 33 years now. But so we have all these things. We have uh, we have all these Inuit people within Edmonton or, or within reach of Edmonton that you know we really don't know very much about. And and so when we start kicking up about a word like Eskimo, there's all this other history that lies in behind it. And and I think people don't you know they don't understand the overall picture. What they understand is that their merchandise is going to go out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I say this frequently. I think one of the most radicalizing things and eye-opening things you can do is actually go out and read history books That's uh, right. and and understand, you know, how the society that you live in, what it was built on, and how it came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think that there is. Uh, you know, I think your piece is very good uh, at kind of getting into that history. Thank you. And I, I want to end our conversation with a quote uh, from your piece that I think is uh, the, very powerful and we can kind of riff off that and then okay. kind of move into the, the end of our conversation. But here's the quote. We get a sense of the loneliness and isolation that those Inuit at the council must have felt now that we are living in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. People have experienced quarantine and the isolation that comes with it firsthand. Now imagine doing that thousands of kilometers from home in a totally alien environment you've never visited before, with your caregivers speaking a language that is foreign to you. In happier moments, I like to imagine a world free of colonialism. I like to imagine what what it would have been like to have no interference in Inuit lives, and to imagine what it would have been like to have Inuit arrive in Edmonton by choice, not by force. Let's build that world. I hope we can, you know, Duncan, I, you know, I've mentioned my grandchildren in the past and 
the work I do, I do for them. And I do for all the young Inuit who are going to come into the city to go to university, to go to Nate, to, um, you know, just try to create a better life for themselves. And, and I think, you know, we have to be able to look forward and we have to be able to provide good care and support to one another. And I would like, you know, if Ed Edmontonians, if they knew that history, if they would take that little bit of time to really understand what happened here in the past and how important it is to create the best future. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Norma. I really appreciate this conversation and the work we've done together. Um, yeah, we're at the end of the show now. So what's uh, what's the best way that people can, you know, find your book and support the work that you're doing? Oh, um, best way. <laughs> Audrey's, you know, downtown Audrey's and Amazon, you know, really, uh, especially with the uh, pandemic, there was such a, you know, all the bookstores closed and um, I don't know how much people have been able to restock, but uh, both of my books are available at Audrey's and through Amazon. All right. Well, yeah, go get those books. Folks. Um, if you, uh, if you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing uh, more podcasts like this, uh, there are a few things you can do to help. Obviously uh, one of the best ways to get the word out about podcasts like this is word of mouth. So share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your colleagues, your neighbors. Um, you know, one thing that also really helps if you've got a minute is to leave a review. So if you can go and leave a not a two-star, not a three-star, not a four-star, but a five-star review for the podcast. It really does help us out in the algorithm that determines, you know, what podcasts to put in front of people when people start looking for podcasts. Right. Those reviews actually do play a big part. And finally, um, you know, one of the most important ways you can help, help keep this independent media project going is by coming, but by becoming a monthly patron and by going to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, you can put in your credit card and, you know, contribute, you know, five, 10, $15 a month. It all really helps. And we really do appreciate it. Also, if you have any notes, uh, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, you can reach me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at uh, Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. Thanks so much to Norma for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it, Norma. Thank you, Duncan. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.